Welcome to the Acting Asian Podcast, diving into a journey of acting as an Asian and moments we find ourselves performing Asian. Today, I've invited the lovely dear Michelle Chan. I've known her since before freshman year of college, and I just thought it would be wonderful to have a conversation with her about directing, being international students, and also more on the performing arts and identity as well as first-generation immigrants. So let's go. Well, hello, Michelle. Um, how are you feeling today? It's early at 10 a.m. Pretty good. Um, I just woke up not too long ago. <laughs> I know you because I've been like working with you and I've known you ever since like freshman year before I like both of us even came to Pace. We connected on Facebook like even before we came to Pace as freshmen like the summer before because we were both from Taiwan and we had some similarities like from our posts on the Facebook groups. I love that. Um, So we go pretty way back. I just wanted people to kind of know a little bit more about your story. So could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Just anything you want to do to introduce yourself. Yeah, so my name is Michelle Chan. I recently turned 22. I'm based in New York City currently. I'm known as in the Sino-speaking world as an ABC, um, American-born Chinese, but I'm actually Taiwanese, half Taiwanese, half Hong Konger, and I'm American because I was born here. Um, I was born in Connecticut and then when we were 10, when I was 10, we moved to Hong Kong. So that's the summer between like fourth and fifth grade. Um, And when I was 18, I moved to New York to study theater. And currently I'm in my last semester, yay. And I'm gonna graduate soon with a bachelor's degree in directing. Um, I consider myself a director, a writer and performer. Like those are the three kind of main disciplines that I'm interested in. Um, But I also do a little bit of producing and some other things I'm interested in wide variety. I'm curious as to how you kind of came into wanting to be a creative. Growing up, were there any kind of influences that kind of led for you to be really interested in doing these different forms of art? Yeah, so I guess this is pretty typical for like Asian American um, kids like growing up we were involved in a lot of activities like we had a lot of extracurriculars that our parents signed us up for like I did ballet tap um, I learned to play violin flute piano everything I even did like martial arts for a second <laughs> I was like my my mom was pretty open with me like joining any activities that I was interested in we also did like girl scouts community service like a bunch of stuff um, and like when I was younger I really really wanted to be um, a dance teacher because I was with the same dance school for so long like ever since I was um, a small child I've like danced with them so I really looked up to the teachers and there were some like student helpers like people who are like teenagers and stuff that would help out and I wanted to be one of them um, 
but as I grew older, I really liked history, like the subject in school. So for a while in middle school and high school, I wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to major in history. Um, and then I remember there was a point around junior year where people were like kind of figuring out like what they wanted to major in and like focusing their classes in high school to like help them get into the major, the school they wanted to get into for college. And there was a moment where I realized that if I wanted to be a lawyer, there would be a lot of time spent um, in an office by myself, <laughs> like reading and doing research. And that just didn't really sound appealing to me anymore. So, I decided that the one good thing that I liked in high school, well, not the one good thing, but the one subject that I really, really liked besides history was theater. So I started getting into that and I didn't really want to be an actor. Um, I liked performing, but I have terrible stage fright um, and acting is so difficult. Um, there's a lot of in the moment stuff, stuff on the fly um, that I don't feel like I'm naturally gifted with. So um, directing kind of came because I was looking for theater programs in the United States um, when I was looking at colleges that would teach me a wide variety. So I applied to a couple devised theater programs. That's what we were doing in high school, my theater program at the time. So I found Pace directing and like the International Performance Ensemble. And then I started thinking a lot more about directing and applied for a couple other directing programs and um, came to Pace, realized that I really did like love directing. Um, like in the beginning of Pace, I actually wasn't sure if I wanted to be a director, like for real. Like I thought maybe I just wanted to be like the divisor, someone who creates only my original work. But um, throughout my time at Pace, I've really fallen in love with the craft of directing. And I love connecting with um, my peers and my fellow actors and, you know, being able to talk to everybody else that's part of the production. I love that. And it's really good to hear that you were like finding different ways of, because you had different interests, but eventually you also figured like, maybe I could do something which is devised theater. And that is something that you came to really love and realize that this is something that you, as like one of those things that you would love to do. Could you tell us a little bit about like your program, the International Performance Ensemble, and also a little bit about devised theater? Yeah, so the International Performance Ensemble is a program at the Pace Performing Arts School. Um, there's two sectors, there's an acting track and a directing track. So essentially what they're trying to do is um, kind of groom us into one big ensemble and we practice uh, creating original theater. So we don't have a script necessarily to start off with. Um, sometimes it's ideas, sometimes it's adaptations, um, and we kind of work on creating original work um, through collaboration. That's kind of the big thing. Um, the way that we've kind of been taught is device theory is not necessarily a product. Like there's not necessarily a genre of just like these are all, like there's no comedy genre, drama genre. There's no device theater genre. It's more about the process in which you create the piece. It's more of like a collaborative, you start with an idea or start with an inspiration versus starting from a script as the blueprint. I love that because I think with device theater, the focus on the process is so important because I think as 
artists or people who are like viewers of art, I only see the result of that as opposed to sometimes it doesn't have to you don't have to have like a set idea that is just set in stone. I think you've gone to international school, is that correct? Could you tell us a little bit about your experience about like being in international school? And I think you've also said you spent some time in the States as well. Yeah, so I grew up in Connecticut um, until I was 10 years old. So most of my elementary school experience, like being a child, my childhood was in Connecticut. Um, and then when we were 10, we moved to Hong Kong, which is where my dad is from. That's his hometown. Um, but at the time, we it was kind of too late for us to kind of adopt to the local school system. That's kind of like the more like regular school. They teach majority, majority in Cantonese, um, but there was a lot of schools that ta taught mostly in English because Hong Kong used to be a British colony. So there's lots of British uh, English influence there. Um, but I think my parents still really wanted us to have this idea of like the Western influence on me and my sister. Um, I think like that's something, my, my parents weren't necessarily like the tiger parents you kind of see like the stereotype. They were pretty um, lenient compared to that. Um, they pretty much let me do whatever I wanted um, in terms of school. Like they didn't really demand that I chose certain subjects. They pretty much were um, open to me choosing whichever I preferred and enjoyed most. So I think that comes with a lot of like, both of my parents were immigrants to America. So like they have that sense of like the American dream to like want to study or be um, whatever whatever we wanted, um, especially my dad, like he came to America for school. So he also had kind of that similar, similar idea. Um, yeah, and I think moving to Hong Kong and like my international school experience was pretty much, it was like the hardest adjustment for me, I think because I was 10 years old when I moved, so I hadn't really known any other life besides the one I was living in Connecticut. And the lifestyle was very different. Um, in Connecticut, we lived in a pretty, um, like a medium-sized town. Um, there was not too many Asian people um, in our elementary school. It was just me, my sister, and one other person. Um, and all of my teachers were white pretty much. Um, so it was a pretty big shock, especially in Hong Kong. It's also a city. So not only the people were different, but the lifestyle, the way of living was also different. So even though I've been to visit Hong Kong and Taiwan in my past, like as a child with my family, it was a difficult adjustment. And I think, Isabel, like we never really talked about this, like me and you, because we have the similar experience, yeah. but we never really compared our experiences before. Like for me, it was pretty much the hardest thing I've ever done at that point. Like being a 10 year old, that was at the top of my list. What about you? <laughs> Yeah, no, this is something so interesting when you say that because I moved in or moved to Taiwan when I was eight years old and that was kind of when I was used to it or also it's like taking into context like I grew up in California and California has like probably the biggest Asian population in all of America so the diversity of that was a little bit more where I felt like, oh, there were a lot of Asians, so I didn't feel like I was that left out, but there were more diversity in that, where I felt like when I moved to Taiwan, 
everyone kind of had a similar background as me where they were either like mostly Taiwanese or East Asian and their parents were of a certain degree to come into the international school that we were in. So I was, that's like so interesting to hear on that because also you've kind of gone, gone to Hong Kong and Hong Kong is like a very globalized city. So it is pretty diverse compared to, I think Taiwan has a smaller scale of that. I, I think I agree with you. Like I think with Hong Kong is definitely their influence of being colonized by the British and their economic influence in the world. Like they're definitely a global city. They're definitely one of like uh, big port trader cities. Uh, so there are a lot of people um, that come and live here from other countries. They call themselves expats, not immigrants. I, I remember one of the things when I first moved to Hong Kong on the first day of school, we had also Mandarin classes because like, you know, the struggle between Hong Kong and China. So I learned Mandarin in school as a subject. So I remember the teacher came down to our classroom before we were going to break for the Mandarin class and asked me if I spoke Mandarin in at home. And I, I did, I said yes, because my mom is from Taiwan. So that is like pretty much my first language. I grew up speaking it, um, but because I lived in America and grew up there, I have an accent. Um, and I went to Chinese school in Connecticut with my cousins and my sister and everyone. And honestly, all the Chinese people, speaking people in our area, we pretty much knew um, because we all kind of gathered in that area. Um, but this is when I realized that that Chinese school education was really nothing compared to uh, what they're learning now in my new school. So I remember going, I told the teacher, yes, I speak Mandarin at home. I was super confident. I was like, yeah, my mom's from Taiwan. I can speak Mandarin. Perfect. And I go up to the classroom and the teacher asked us to write an essay about our summer vacation. And I was like, I've never written an essay in Chinese before. I think I can only maybe do like two to five sentences at a time. Like, can I use the dictionary? Like, And then I got demoted to a lower tier class. <laughs> That's what I had to do when I went back to Taiwan. Like I had to take an entrance exam. So I had to take an English exam. And then I also had to take a Chinese exam. And then I was like, oh my God, I know Chinese. Like I'm literally almost on level. and. I had to do an essay prompt and it said my diary. So I had to write like, oh, what happened on my day? And I thought it was just like copying the word, uh, my diary. So then I just kept writing it again and again. <laughs> I turned it in and the teacher was like, you know, you're supposed to write about your day. And I was like, like yeah, the level is so different. Like I definitely agree with you. And it's so different from like Chinese school back in California. And also, as you mentioned, like with Connecticut to Chinese school in like Connecticut. So definitely because we were I was comparing it to like my other friends from school, like my Western friends, my American friends. They obviously I know a lot more Chinese uh, compared to them. And like that's impressive to them. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'm fluent. I can do this. <laughs> In terms of international school, like, how was it in terms of 
academics that you kind of noticed, even though it was like you had a certain level as you were younger, but as you grew older, how did you feel like the academics kind of compared for you? Although it was pretty diverse compared to your school in Taiwan, we were diverse in terms of like different nationalities or ethnicities within Asia. So the most of the population, the students were Asian background. Um, we had a lot of people that were like from Hong Kong, their parents are from Hong Kong, a couple of people from Taiwan, Korea, Japan, India, Pakistan, um, and then a couple people from Europe and America. Um, but the teachers were all majority white and from either the UK or Australia and New Zealand. Those are like the main groups, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting because so Hong Kong has a lot of international schools because of our, our history. So there is a big organization called the English Schools Foundation. They basically are a huge organization with like, I don't know, like 10 or a dozen different like elementary schools and middle schools around the city. So they are kind of known for like having organization together. They're supposed to like be a little bit less expensive than the other private schools, but still very expensive. Like it was a private school. Um, they, that was what it was like the majority of their schools. It was mostly white centric education. The teachers were a majority white. They actually sourced their teachers from the UK and Australia specifically. Like they would put advertisements in those countries trying to attract, um, you know, young teachers from wanting to come live in Hong Kong and, you know, get their housing subsidized and stuff Mm -hmm. Um, and applying with a foreign passport, you get a lot of these benefits. Like um, every year you get a plane ticket home to visit your family. Um, A lot of benefits and stuff like that. Yeah. So my sister is actually studying to be a teacher and she's considering going back to teach in that system. Yeah. So it was very Eurocentric, even though the majority of students were people of color and Asian descent, it was pretty Eurocentric uh, education. Um, We did learn a a broader history um, of like history of the Americas, Europe, and Asia, but still at the same time, we were looking at it through a European white-centric lens, which is really interesting considering the fact that we were in Asia location-wise and our majority of our students were like not from a Eurocentric Uh, background Mm -hmm. um especially i remember when we were learning about the cultural revolution and you know mao's china in our history class it was interesting to see that some of our some of my peers like had stories to tell like one of my friends her mom was like one of the students during the Tiananmen massacre uh period like she was one of the student advocates and activists there but we were being taught like this, this student had this real life experience from her mom. She knows the story from her mom, but we were taught by this like white older woman from the UK who's never met or been even been there during that time, you know? So that was kind of weird. And I think during the time I didn't really notice it as much, but definitely looking back now, I see that. Um, but in terms of academics, it was still definitely science, STEM subjects, um, more 
how do you say like more advocated for <laughs> more put on a pedestal and then like the art subjects theater music we had all of those subjects we actually had a great um resources like the theaters at my high school studios or a lot better than paces. We had a great facilities because our school was, had so much money, but um, not a lot of people took advantage of that because um, STEM subjects, science, um, math, uh, history were more seen as more important and more um, desirable, I guess. Mm. Wow. Like, I feel like I do see similarities within my school where it's like the arts were kind of more of like extracurriculars and it was less of this like, oh, this is an abs- like a subject that everyone must take because yes, as I like, as you've mentioned, like it's still a very STEM based education. Like mine was literally near like Science Park, which is the Silicon Valley of Taiwan. <laughs> when you're talking about international school, you have like that diversity, but also in the same time you have a very western centric education was it because most people were planning on like applying for colleges later on abroad in more like uk or australia based places most people applied to schools in the uk and then i think the second most popular was staying in hong kong because we do have great uh, universities and then the third level would be america and then australia and then the other ones were just like random. A lot of people who had European citizenship would go back to their mm. citizen country and uh, study for free or, you know, at a lower rate there. Um, in countries like Germany, Netherlands and stuff like that. Um, but I, I definitely think it was because people like people who uh, their parents or family were from Hong Kong and went to these international schools that like wasn't like me who like had lived in a different country and like didn't have good enough Chinese to go to the local schools <laughs> like the people who grew up here in Hong Kong um, uh, most of them were wealthy I mean a, a large population they were all um, you know upper middle class can afford this luxury lifestyle can afford to send their children to um, international schools and therefore get a, a foreign and university degree um, and pay for that. Um, so that was the plan. I would say like the plan for most people was to get a degree in the US or the UK or like go to a top tier Hong Kong or Asian university. Wow, that's so interesting. I think with my school, it was more of an American kind of education where most people would be applying for like America universities. And Taiwan does have pretty good universities as well, but Hong Kong has a lot of English programs, whereas in Taiwan, there are now, but it wasn't as much. You've mentioned quite a lot about your family and also this feeling and pursuing of the American dream. And they're really supportive about you and your sister just exploring whatever venues. How has like your relationship been with them within a generational difference, which I'm curious about? Yeah, um, I think there's definitely a generational difference that's different <laughs> there are generational difference that's different than like a normal you know if I was to say like a average middle class Americans white Americans life because like as, as first generation um, Americans our parents are immigrants they grew up very differently and it's that's something we can't really comprehend as children like when we're growing up we don't really realize that I think for me like I realize 
pretty early on that like my family looked different than my friends at school uh, besides the fact that we spoke a different language at school or at home compared to school um I remember there was only like um one there's one other kid in my class in fourth grade who also spoke a different language at home and his mom only spoke Spanish so he would get special like the permission forms um he would get a Spanish copy but at the time Chinese wasn't as popular so they didn't have that option for us so I think for us we we notice that there is this difference but we can't really label it as we're when we're kids and growing up as we grow older and find more independence um, and learn more about the outside world um, those that are different to our family we can see it more clearly I think um, definitely when I started um, going to school in New York and being far away from my family I could kind of name that difference more. Um, but I think I've come to the realization that even though my family is different than like in the traditional sense, I am still, I'm not close to my family in the way others might be just because we can't really bond over these shared experiences because they are so different. Um, that doesn't diminish the closeness or the familial presence I feel and the comfort that I feel with my family. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, because we don't see this represented in the media and like, and those around us, especially if I don't really have a community around me that looks like me, that's kind of hard to come to the understanding of. Mm -hmm. This reminds me because um, I did um, ja, like the workshop that you casted me in and I guess your work and piece of kind of trying to depict this bilingual family that's going through different ways of trying to communicate with each other and trying to understand each other. Actually, I would want you to say and talk a little bit more about your inspiration for coming with Ja because I think that also is a very personal work that you've also devised and created. Ja was a workshop <laughs> that Isabella and I did together a few years ago. It, it, it came out of my work with Haruna Lee. They are um, an experimental performer. Well, I guess, I guess we could call them experimental. I don't really know what denotes experimental these days, but uh, they're like a downtown a theater maker. They were the guest um, director for my freshman and sophomore year project. So I really felt a connection to them because they were the first time an Asian American taught me um, anything to do with theater. So I immediately was so um, you know compelled by them. They um, spoke so eloquently and directly, and I was just amazed by them. <laughs> and this was also the first time where I saw like, oh, a successful adult making their life in theater, supporting themselves. That's not famous. <laughs> like you can be successful theater maker, performer without being famous. Um, they really showed me like, I had this voice inside me that like I had something to say they kind of prompted me to do do this I Jack came out of something I wrote for our project a freshman sophomore year for uh, based on their prompt um, and they 
they kind of encouraged me to like delve further and work on um, understanding this part of my identity more. And Jia kind of grew from that and my work with my therapist at the time. Currently, this is again, like what I was speaking about earlier when I first moved to New York and was able to kind of see my family relationship more clearly from, from a position of looking back on. Um, it kind of just kind of delved from that um, and inspired by some of my personal experiences, but also some things that I was learning were um, were unique to the first generation American experience. Would you be comfortable to share a little bit about the realizations that you may come from your first time living alone across the oceans to pursue something that you love? Um, I mean, it was pretty scary, but I think because I had that experience of moving to Hong Kong when I was 10, this kind of felt like nothing compared to that. Um, but I think when I came to America, one of the more shocking things like moving back was, although I grew up in a more Western influence in Hong Kong, um, I still didn't really understand all the references and everything that they were talking about in New York. But aside from that, like being away from my family, I, at first I was kind of upset that we didn't have this close relationship and I didn't really know how to stay in contact with my family being so far away. Now that we're not like forced to speak to each other every day, I actually have to make an effort to tell my parents what's going on or have them inform me like what they're doing and stuff. And I remember one of the early fears that I had was I was worried that once I became financially independent from them, they were still helping me out, you know, at the time with money and stuff that they, that I would lose the relationship with my parents, which I obviously don't want. Um, so that was one of my earlier fears. And I kind of realized that I just have to create a different relationship um, on my own terms. Like I'm, an adult now. This um, this transition into adulthood also includes figuring out where your relationship can develop with your parents. A lot of people kind of find that they are closer with their parents as adults, and I feel definitely that is starting to happen with me and my parents and my sister as well. They um, they always gave us a lot of responsibility. They always trusted us to make our own decisions with school and stuff. They never were too hands-on. They um, trusted that we would um, be on the right track and choose subjects and interests that we were interested in. So this kind of developed from that. They trust our opinions and they just want to, you know, the best for us and like to be happy and to be happy in what, what we're doing. And I think like my, my grandfather definitely was, I, I think, I think moving here and pursuing um, a career in the theater makes me reflect back a lot on being a first generation American. Um, I think that's where my voice most prevalently stands at the moment in terms of I feel really so lucky to be here um, and pursuing this dream or this opportunity to pursue this dream that my parents and 
the generation before them, my grandparents not have this opportunity to. And I think that's kind of the pressure that I unconsciously or consciously put on myself, you know, of like, I must be successful because I cannot afford to throw away this opportunity that generations of my family worked so hard to afford me. Um, and I think that's where the pressure comes in. I think that's where I become attracted to these stories of being immigrant American, first generation American, et cetera. Wow. That's something that I really think about. And this goes with like dreams, like, cause this is something I've been talking with my dad about where it's like, I feel like, like he's always been taught and my grandpa then has always been taught to like work hard and like financially support your family because that's the most important thing now like my dad was able to achieve that to some degree and he's able to support me um, being in new york and i always think about like oh well i'm here actually pursuing something that i genuinely love and for him doing engineer work is not the most fun thing that he really wants but also at the same time he's like i've been kind of beaten down to not know what it is that really brings me joy but he does know that what brings him joy is seeing as long as we are happy like he is happy and like happy that he could support us and let us follow our dreams which i understand like that pressure that may come you're pursuing something and you want to like make them feel maybe proud and you make them feel like really happy and all and it's like i think that's something that will always be this pressure that you will have. I think what we're speaking about here is a pretty common first generation trope. I think, especially because I think both of us, um, after, you know, you're speaking about your dad, we, I feel like we both feel pretty lucky that we have parents who aren't necessarily like STEM only math, science, you know, like our, both our parents seem like they genuinely want us to find our career and our interests. And I think it's important to remind ourselves like this pressure that we put on is ourselves like my parents really don't care if I um, make a hundred thousand dollars next year like they don't really care if I make six figures as long as I can support myself and be happy doing what I'm doing Mm -hmm. Um, and to speak to you know what you were saying about your dad that that is something I've also been thinking about a lot recently because my grandfather recently passed away um, last week and I have been thinking a lot about you know our life and my life here in America in New York pursuing my dreams and he was um, the pioneer to kind of you know move our family to America he was born in China and he was taken or I guess not taken, quote unquote saved by the allied troops (laughs) to Taiwan during the war, during the civil war. So, Mm -hmm. um, so like, that's like the, uh, the Guomindang and, you know, the allied troops and stuff. They retreated back. Back to Taiwan. And that's how we ended up in Taiwan, but eventually moved to America seeking better life for his children, his grandchildren. So as a result, he worked his entire life. He had a very hard life and he never really accustomed to American lifestyle. Eventually he and my grandmother moved back to Taiwan 
when they retired because they just in I think you know they can live more independently there they liked being able to you know go to the market and stuff themselves and um, meet up with their family without relying on us because although they spent you know a few decades in Hong in America sorry they never really learned the language because they always worked and then after work, they were at home hanging out with the family. So they never had a need to, um, and they never learned to drive. So because they never learned to read and write, um, they're illiterate pretty much. Um, they grew up in the civil war and then, you know, had to start working. So they never even completed um, elementary school education. So, when my grandfather and my grandma, after they retired, they didn't really have a lot of hobbies. They didn't really have um, a lot of things to do to fill up their time. They kind of just spent time with each other, um, played mahjong with other family members, visit other family members, you know, that was mostly their life. And to think that, you know, my grandfather just passed away from cancer and he had a very sad ending to his very hard life. Um, all to make sacrifices for us. Um, that's kind of like the pressure that I feel like a lot of us feel to not waste this opportunity and these sacrifices mm -hmm. that our parents and grandparents and whoever have given to us. And I think because we as first generation Americans can so easily touch and see these sacrifices, we more heavily feel their weight. You know, your grandparents sound like very incredible people and to be able to go through this because this was all they've known in terms of life. They're like, I want to survive. I want to work hard. I want to try and be able to support the family because the family unit is also something so strong within our culture, essentially, and the need to want to support and be able to help other people is something so beautiful your grandparents gen like generation and your parents generation and now your generation right now seeing how like all of us are trying to like speak up about our experiences and talk about the immigrant experience based on our families like this is something that i think we take on and take the responsibility as a like person as an individual as an artist all these things and that's something very beautiful and i'm pretty sure like your grandpa is like very proud of you because a huge part I think I think would bring him so much joy is to see you be happy in the same way that your parents also want you to be happy as well. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, a lot of people say the people who have the least give the most. Uh, I think that's definitely true, especially when we look at these first generation families and you know, immigrant families, they have this such survival mentality like you were speaking about but they understand that at a human level. Like my aunt, for example, she lives in Connecticut. She, um, uh, one year, like a couple of years ago, she, she is part of a lot of these Facebook groups, like Taiwanese people in Connecticut, Taiwanese Americans, like Facebook groups. She responded to a post from someone who was living in her area who just moved there and needed help to take care of their 
her twins. Like she just moved to the area. Her husband was uh, going to the university nearby and she just needed some help. So my aunt responded and was like, well, I can't really help you, but I'm, I live very close in your area. Like if you need some food, like I can make Taiwanese food, like I can drop food, stuff like that. So from that, she made so many friends that are also students from that university um and she kind of became like their mom their you know Chinese mom away from home and Chinese New Year they can't go back home she would do like a small meal party at her house and stuff like that and I I visit her sometimes and I can see it firsthand that she's very giving and generous I mean my aunt has always been like this like my entire life I remember she's always been generous um, like this, but that's just a prime example of the, you know, people who experience less give the most, most times. That's so beautiful. And thank you so much for sharing your story and what you're going through. And I hope sending you all the strength and love over to you. <laughs> I definitely agree with that. I think, and it's so beautiful to see your aunt really trying to build a sense of like community and love. But yes, this also wants, leads me to ask, as you've also mentioned, you start to find yourself more wanting to talk about and devise works on the immigrant experience. What are some things that you have been interested in, like specifically within the immigrant experience or stories that you would want to tell? Yeah, uh, so I'm most interested in this idea of different cultures clashing. Um, I think that's a definitely a general theme in my life so far um, in terms of, you know, moving to Hong Kong, then moving back and, you know, being first generation American, having, um, knowing multiple languages. Um, that's really where my interest lies currently, I think. Um, but I don't know if there are stories out there right now. I, I think I need to look for them. I know there's definitely people out there that must be writing them and thinking about this. But the way that our industry is right now, it's very difficult for us to find these stories if we're not in the community. Like, for example, like one thing that always kind of bothered me about Pace is I I feel like I've had a relatively fine experience so far. I think I've learned a lot about myself and a lot about what I want to do. Um, I've had some great teachers, some all right teachers. Um, and I, I think the one main thing that I Pace has really done disservice to me is helping me curate this community that looks and has ideas similar to me like uh, all of my I have made some great connections I have met some amazingly talented peers and colleagues at Pace and from my experiences connected to Pace but not a lot of people who are also interested in this topic no. um, because of their background, there aren't really a lot of first-generation Americans at right? There aren't a lot of people that look like me here. Um, so I'm about to graduate. I have all these great connections. I have all these um, great peers who are young and hungry, ready to work, and I'm ready to work with them, connect with them, and network with them. But nobody that wants to write a story like this 
um, you know, nobody who has the story um, existing for them, ex for their experiences. And I think that's really the thing I'm missing, this community of um, BIPOC individuals, individuals who have lived experiences similar to mine. Um, that's something that's been difficult for me to find. I always wonder, like with art, or the art that I would want to create is something that is personal. It's something that got, has gone into my life. I may have experienced it before. And how can I tell that story? I am in a different program from you. And we don't necessarily focus that much on devising works. Though I do think a lot of my peers are very like passionate about creating their own works, which is wonderful. Sometimes it goes this feeling, and I'm not sure if or you may have had this feeling where it's like, sometimes my voice is not important enough or I don't know how can I write this story that can make it get onto a stage or can reach to um, an actor who would want to audition for the work that I want to do. And I think the resources that Pace Performing Arts has when it comes with wanting to bring more like BIPOC people that have been like creating these works, like we have less of this interaction to get to know. So it's kind of like with our peers, and most people in my class are white. I think you're definitely on the right track. And I think it's because we are at school still, we are at a place where we are expected to be nurtured. We are coming to school with all these professors we look up to, professors who've had this big, long resume um, of things that we're interested in doing. A lot of my professors are living the life that I want to live, you know, like that's my um, success story. but. They haven't, because there is a lack of BIPOC representation in the faculty and the student body, we don't have that nurture of our stories. Like, like I was mentioning, Haruna was the first Asian American to ever teach me anything to do with theater um, at all. And they were the first person to make me realize like, oh, this story that, oh, because of this prompt, I thought of this story with, uh, from my personal experience. They were the one who told me like, oh, this is a unique experience to the first generation um, ex uh, American experience. That is a unique voice. You should continue with that um, and see what you really think about this. Um, but if, if a white peer, a, a white teacher had given me that prompt and I had thought of that, they may not see that as a first generation experience. They might just see that as my personal experience um, just as an individual, as a woman, or however she saw me, because they don't have that lived experience. They don't recognize that that is the voice that they should, you know, be nurturing, I guess. I don't know. I think that's kind of what I've been thinking about lately. I think it's it's a lot to do with who has the power in the room to tell us, yes, that's, yes, no, uh, nurture, nurturing these voices um, and supporting these voices because the, the role of the educator is so important in the development of us, of young, young emerging, pre-emerging artists, you know? Yeah, I think we come to the program expecting to be taught and brought into different perspectives to come with a different point of view. And I do think to some degree, um, for me, like it's like there's different, like venues they're showing like oh you can film make you could screenwrite you could um do voiceover you can do commercials all these different venues but also there's less of this emphasis on like oh but 
how do you as an individual want to share yourself and bring a part of you like something that's intensely deeply personal and bring that kind of experience on where we can see this different form of representation in some way how do you find your voice in continuing to create some works for you when even so like pace is unable to fully be able to provide this resource for you um I feel pretty lucky because my uh, directing class is small. There's only four of us now in the graduating class. Um, and as a result, we've become very close, I think. Um, and we are pretty diverse in terms of others. So there's just four of us. Um, there's only one white person out of the four. So the rest of us are identified as BIPOC. I am the only woman, but <laughs> um, it's, I feel that I rely on them a lot. I, a lot of times when I think of ideas or see something crazy, um, I will go to them first. And um, I think because we have worked so intimately together, we've really understood um, what each other is interested in and what we have to bring to the storytelling industry uh, better than we may even know ourselves. Yeah. Um, so I feel really lucky that I have that group that I can go to, that um, group of friends and colleagues that I really rely on. Um, besides from that, um, it's pretty difficult, I think, to encourage yourself. Um, I think during COVID, during the like quarantine, right in March, April, um, and over the summer, it really hit me like, what am I gonna do after graduation? <laughs> like, especially now with COVID and everything, like I remember right when I got back from study abroad, so like January of, last year, 2020, I was super excited to take on the world. I felt like I had great experience that I could bring this experience back. I had a couple projects lined up for the summer, you know, before we knew COVID was here. And I was feeling excited about my schoolwork and I was like super confident in my skill. And I was like, great, I know how to be a director now. I can do it. Um, so COVID like really, I think hit, um, like took me down a couple pegs and right now I'm kind of in the process of trying to build the confidence back again especially learning so many things about our industry in terms of race relations now that they're being ousted um called out called in whatever you know we want to explain it as it's difficult to keep going when it feels like there's nothing there's no room for someone like us um, stories like the ones we want to tell at the table so then it becomes like we know we can break this glass ceiling eventually we can make our own way into the table we can shove our way and pull up our own chair but as young people because we're still so young we're still like pre-emerging I haven't made any professional debut at all <laughs> um, it's hard to have that pressure both of those coinciding pressures because then it becomes of like am I good enough to make it and also break into this table mm. you know am I good enough strong enough or brave enough to even like 
break into the big white fancy American theater industry world? Am I interesting enough? Am I interesting enough to be the trailblazer um, and break that glass ceiling? Um, I don't know. And I think that's kind of hard to keep going because change is so slow, you know, so slow that like sometimes we can't even see it happening. Um, at times, so it's definitely difficult to keep pushing and advocating. Um, but I, I do think truly with this sustained pushing and pressure, we will eventually break the glass ceiling a couple times maybe, but with sustained, sustained advocacy. I think with COVID, it really brought into like a magnifying glass of all the stuff that I've been thinking about, but I've never really took the time to like fully digest all this. And mm-hmm. I think I really resonate with what you were saying with the feeling of, am I able to break in this industry that is predominantly white? And is my story and what I have to bring interesting enough for people? Are there people that you really look up to in this like process where you see they have kind of broke like broken through the entertainment industry and have brought their stories in um, to the theater world or even film or whatever medium there is. First of all, Haruna Lee, I've talked about them so much today already. They obviously had such a big influence on me and my storytelling, my my lens of looking at storytelling, you know. Um, Someone else um, I really look up to is um, Lulu Wang. I know that they had been struggling for a really long time before the farewell got picked up. And it was kind of like her last attempt. So she kind of like gave it her all. She's like talked about this in interviews a lot where she kind of was like thinking about giving up um, writing screenwriting and kind of just gave this last chance her all and it was you know the one that got picked up and resonated with the most people and because of that because that was kind of like her okay this is it or this or nothing this is it or nothing she um pushed so much to create the authenticity of the film that she felt you know of her own authenticity because um you know I, I think something that a lot of people don't talk about enough is that the representation of marginalized groups sometimes becomes monolith you know it it, it feels like everybody has that same experience oh you're Asian American, okay, oh, you must all have tiger parents, or, oh, okay, then that means the mom in this movie must, you know, must be cooking all the time, and, you know, ask the sons about their studies, you know, um, that, those stereotypes, I think, come when we feel like we need to represent our community in a certain way in order to be accepted with a place at the table, you know, and it, it's hard to stay authentic. So that story always inspires me, knowing that that is how um, Lulu Wang uh, created the farewell, that story specifically. Cool. That inspires me that I wanted to mention was Cindy Tsai. You had her on the podcast a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. And she inspired me because I remember reading about her story from Emerson when she, you know, came to Pace. And I remember, you know, following her on Instagram and, you know, following her story and stuff and seeing her work with CR Truths and listening to what she has to say. And 
her work with Zappy artists really inspires me more because she's my age and she has such similar lived experiences as me but she's someone that like I know from afar and we maybe communicate a few times like via text or on Instagram but I don't really super know her personally so I think that's definitely why I you know admire her from afar (laughs) yeah no Cindy Tai is um a trailblazer and she's amazing and it's just wonderful to see her and also you like doing the work as well maybe we don't often see this on social media like a platform of this change or this space that you're advocating for but as an individual you are doing the work in either like creating the works or having conversations with individuals about like the change that you want to do the like art you want to create and the like specs in society that you want to point out on. I think that's something like something so strong within you to be someone as like a director to want to try and bring your story onto it because I think as an actor the responsibility is to play a character and also understand the story, but the story is often created and devised by a director who sees the whole frame and sees the entirety of how a piece is to be made. But yeah, I think also, as we mentioned a little bit on, with how we view of representation when it comes to like Asian Americans or just like um, the whole community, when we're seeing on that, how do you, do you feel like things have changed? Do you think things have improved within theater for you um, based on your understanding? Or do you feel like there are some things that need to be brought into light more. In terms of Asian American representation in the theater, I think definitely in the last year or two, we've seen more milestones being hit, um, like Cambodian rock band, Lauren Yee's play was so well received. And that was a huge you know, representation of a, a big American, uh, Asian American uh, experience and, you know, um, story that wasn't often seen before and um we had you know young jing lee was the first asian american playwright to have a play on broadway not too long ago only like two years ago i think i think in terms of these milestones we're definitely focused on hitting those um i i I think though there's definitely a long way to go in terms of support and nurturing of Asian American artists, be it actors or writers, directors, anyone really. Um, Because like you mentioned, for actors, you get handed a script. You don't get asked if you like the script. You don't get asked if you want to make changes usually. You're just handed the script and expected to, you know, develop the character. Um, But the the script comes to you already made, then we must look back at who's writing the script, who is greenlighting the script. The screenwriters, playwrights must also be representing these experiences in their authenticity, sure. what, what means authentic for them. And the producers, the people who are greenlighting the, this project must also have those intentions um, of authenticity and stuff and I I think that's what we're missing right now like Mm -hmm. I think we're not focused enough on the facilitators of the industry the gatekeepers of the industry the people who hold the real power 
is where I think we need to focus on. And I think we see you, um, white American theater is really focusing on that. They're not really like, they're like, you know, people on screen, the representation of actors, people we see on screen and stage. Yes, that's very important. We've talked about that a lot, but what, who has the power to make these decisions? And are they making them for the right intentions or are they meeting them or meeting a quota with those intentions, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that that's the next question that um, we see you is trying to answer. And I think that our, our generation is trying to develop. So I think if white people wanted to be allies in this fight of racial inequality um, in the fight for racial justice, et cetera, in terms of their everyday lives, I think it has to be a, a, a consistent pressure. Like I was mentioning earlier, we can't just drop the ball. So that means in your everyday practices, your life, you acknowledge these things of white supremacy and those systems that are in place. So when you do get that job as a white woman, doesn't mean you have to give that job up for a BIPOC person, but in your contract, make sure your team has certain amount of people that are BIPOC. Make sure if you are representing, if you have a character in your story that's not your lived experience, make sure you have someone on the team, you know, that can speak to that or hire someone that can, you know, Th those, those things in the contracts and those things that white people can demand from their industry is the allyship that we need, not the, the Instagram posts or whatever, you know? I think that is one of the ways to make sure you are consistently pushing for um, equality for all in your everyday lives. I love that because I think very often we see this like representation. We're like, oh, wow, visually, this is great. We have this all Asian cast, but then really yes as an actor's responsibility is to be aware of like how can you play the character but then there's a higher part where it's like who's the director who's the person who is storytelling on this and what is their perspective based on their upbringing on it and then also the producers who yes as you mentioned like greenlight this and say this is okay this is a story that everyone would love when sometimes it not necessarily is the case i think a good example of that is like I've been re-watching New Girl on Netflix recently. It's, it's a pretty, like, 2010s uh, TV show. Um, and they have, for the 2010s, I feel like they have a pretty diverse cast. Um, um, you know, so Cece is uh, the character of Indian descent, and she mm -hmm. is about to get married. And she's very stressed, like, at her engagement party. So her best friend, Zoe Deschanel, calls um, her uncle or gets on the phone with the uncle and is like yelling at the uncle like this is not your day like take the pressure off Cece and help her etc and then two scenes later she says something um, culturally insensitive about the thing and it's about um, the wedding and something and it's just that is a prime example of Yes, they have a diverse cast. Yes, it's so cool that they're showing this uh, CC's culture on film or on the screen. But clearly, whoever wrote this script, whoever the screenwriter, whoever was in the writer's room didn't have 
this script didn't go through enough people with Cece's lived experiences. Mm. Because if you were someone from that experience, you would know if if Jess Zoe Deschanel's character was close enough for to Cece's parents or Cece's family to make that that line say that line yell at him over the phone she wouldn't have said that insensitive thing about the culture Mm. small things like that um I think as BIPOC individuals or people who have these marginalized experiences can see and like catch very quickly Mm -hmm. don't have that experience um, and you're in the writer's room without that that's something that goes unnoticed I guess we can lead to the final closing questions what has been on your mind like as of this present moment I think definitely that fear that I was talking about that I had over the summer of like what how am I gonna make my seat at the table am i am i interesting enough good enough to break that shove my way in um that is definitely something i'm still thinking about and kind of working around um in sense of building my confidence uh, but in terms of like planning my career goals and stuff i i've been thinking a lot about that because I'm graduating soon and like what I want my career to look like. Um, I think a lot of the times working in a creative field like this, it's difficult to plan that, have a plan um, because you don't know when the opportunities will come. You don't know when the opportunities will find you and when you will find them. So it's pretty difficult to plan, but I think I need to remind myself to be consistent and in my growth and my, nurturing of my own voice um i've been listening to um talking direction podcast which is a drama league podcast that they're doing right now and they have an episode they have a series right now about uh they have directors come on talking about the financial hardships of being a director it's pretty unstable (laughs) Um, so they're talking a little bit about success and like what success means as a director because for most people it's not you know Broadway show running for two months it means something else and I think for me that means being successful in terms of like making all of my money through theater I think that is my goal as of now and I think right now I'm trying to define how I can do that and what that means for me because I'm not interested only in directing. I'm interested in other things, but I also have other skills. So I really just want to make a living uh, full-time from the theater and um, not have to work a minimum wage job. And that's, I'm figuring out how I can get there. Mm, I love that. And um, I guess this leads me also, it's like an extenuation of what you've mentioned, but if you were in an ideal world and there's nothing that was stopping you, <laughs> um, what would you want to do? Like, um, yeah, what would you want to do? Anything, everything, yes. <laughs> I was in an ideal world where there was no COVID and no travel restrictions and uh, no financial restrictions. I would 
create a theater company with my friends and we would focus on marginalized stories and we would produce those on stage and charge nothing <laughs> for people to come. We would have free tickets and somehow we would stay afloat. <laughs> I love, oh my God. <laughs> All right, well, this leads me to ask the final question. What is acting Asian? What is it to you? For me, I think it, it reminds me a lot of like trying to find your authentic voice despite like my what other people in the industry may feel about us. Like, I think, uh, like we were mentioning earlier, it's hard to find this unique and authentic voice when there are so many stereotypes and prejudices. Um, and I think acting Asian is kind of this term to describe finding what it means for me to be Asian. You know, I'm Asian American, but also I have this experience of living in Hong Kong and, you know, um, spending a lot of my time in Taiwan too. What does this mean about my experience and how can I bring that diaspora or that experience of the Asian diaspora to my work and um, find the authenticity in that and portraying this lived experience authentically, I think is what that means to me. Thank you so much, Michelle, for coming. Please let us know, like, are there any upcoming things that um, you have or things you want to let the audience know? Yeah, so currently I'm working on my senior devised show. Um, it's premiering, the opening night is February 12th. So if you guys want to get tickets, they're free. And it's a short piece. There's four pieces. All of them are pretty short. And we've been working on these pieces pretty much for a year now. And we were going to do them in person and then had to move to remote. So we've definitely had a lot of challenges <laughs> during the process. But you can check that out. And if you want to follow Bee Bags, um, be dot bags. Um, yes. May and I started a small business where we're crocheting these little bags. Um, lots of them up, so check those out. And we're donating 20% of the proceeds to Campaign Zero. Forgot to mention that. They, Campaign Zero is a, a nonprofit organization whose main goal is to stop police violence in the United States. So they have a list of 10 action items that they believe are the most effective. And they constantly are, they are putting sustained pressure on our government officials to enact and um, advocate for these changes. Thank you so much, Michelle, for coming too. Thanks for having me. Had a great conversation. Thank you all so much for supporting the Acting Asian podcast. If you love this series, please give a review on Apple Podcasts or subscribe to see the latest episodes. I hope you have a great, amazing rest of the week. And I will see you soon for the next episode on Acting Asian.